This is the Pushing Left Podcast, Episode 5, Compensation in Tech. All right, welcome to the Pushing Left Podcast. Welcome back. We are going to talk about uh, compensation in tech this week, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how the tax code influences uh, compensation. It is going to be quite the barn burner. My name is Jim. Hello, Daniel's with us as well. How's it going, Daniel? It's good. It's good. I'm excited for this this wonky episode today. Oh, man, this this episode is going to be so wonky, but I'm going to try to keep it light and funny, as I always uh, attempt to do. And um, Uh. we'll see how that goes. Um, So... Basically, one of the things that I always try to think about when, you know, when I think about like how our society should be organized and like, you know, I, I try to look at things in a way that is, you know, do we want this structure to be the way that it is? And I try to think critically about a lot of things uh, that way. And uh, I've really been helped along by that by um, reading uh, Anand uh, Girdardas's book. Uh, he wrote Winners Take All of the Elite Charade of Changing the World, I think it's called. Um, and he talks a lot about philanthropy and um, how the powerful wield their power for good uh, and how it, it, it uh, influences both financial systems and the way that we organize our our society and whether or not that's you know the thing that we want to do and one of the things i like about his approach is that he he asks questions about things that we don't often ask questions about and so that's kind of the the background uh, for today's society i want to talk about um ask some questions about how compensation works in, in technology and actually at several companies but it's uh because of the nature of technology it, it it's worse uh or better depending on your perspective or or i guess you know the amplitude is higher uh in tech and to be clear you what you mean here in america right here in america yeah so um yeah in, in u.s tech i guess uh so one of the things that i have heard from a lot of like right leaning people and, and, you know, even people who like probably are in lower tax brackets is like, I really want there to be a flat tax. And I think that progressive taxes are stupid and uh, it was wrong to set it up that way and uh, whatnot. Okay. And I think we, we think about, you know, the progressive taxation, system as you know people who make more money have to pay more taxes okay and what you end up with is a system where oh i feel bad for these people who are in top marginal tax rates of you know 35 percent or whatever um and it's like oh you know like they have no benefits for being wealthy okay and uh i think we you know people on the left need to start talking about like you know, challenging those those concepts a lot more because when people when somebody says, I think that 
you know, we should have a flat tax or I don't like the way the current tax code works. It should be on a postcard. What, you know, they're not wrong by saying, I think the tax code is unfair to some people and I think it should be more fair and less complicated, right? Agree, disagree, Daniel? Uh, I, I'm i listening to you thinking okay. about the, the story that just broke this week from uh, Popula about the IRS saying we only pursue or we overwhelmingly pursue poor people because they can't afford tax lawyers. I'm, I'm I, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of this uh, story, but uh, basically right. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is like the, the other thing to add to that, when the, when the IRS pursues uh, tax money, they get returned something at like eight to one, like every dollar they invest in enforcement, they get $8 back. Right. And so are you enforcing that against, poor people are rich people right so there the way i see it there are uh three buckets of people that i that i sort of think of when i think of how people pay taxes right you have bucket one where you have an administrist or somebody who goes to a job and they get like a w-2 and they just like have income and then they pay their taxes and it's like it all happens in 2020 or whatever year they earned the income in, right? And then you have another bucket of people who are, um, you know, maybe have income, but they also have capital, uh, you know, the, you know, the, their primary way of making income is through capital or, or they are able to shift around how they pay their taxes because they have capital assets. So whether they, invest in property or stocks or whatever. And then you have the third type of person who is somebody who owns a, a corporation and they keep the income and expenses within that corporation, uh, within that corporation until they want to take some income out of the corporation and then they pay income taxes on that and corporate this tax. This is an S corp, right? Right. Well, there's different ways of doing that but yeah so like for example uh you know the president of the united states is a, is a good example we found out that he you know took income from the apprentice from 2005 and offset it offset that income against losses moving forward in in years since that he lost money right and he recouped that money that he paid in taxes from the government because it was offset by losses. Did you did you deep dive on the Times piece on that? I haven't yet, honestly. I have deep dives. And one of the crazy things that they discovered is that uh, one of the things that allowed him to offset his like basically offset his losses with that gains from the apprentice was that he had taken advantage of an Obama era uh, tax break that allowed <laughs> him to spread out things across five years. And then in the Trump yeah. tax cuts, he extended that to 20 years. Right. And so, oh, of course he did. So it's like an obvious thing where you say, okay, does it make sense for somebody who owns a corporation to spread out their tax losses and gains over 20 years, right? Is that a society you want to live in? 
And it's like, mm-hmm. I think most Americans would be like, no, I don't think that's a, a society I want to live in. We should change that. Right. Right. One would hope. One would hope. If they, you know, could be explained. The compl- right. right. The complexities. So I want to talk about that second bucket uh, for most of this episode, because a lot of people in tech are in that second bucket or to the extent that they're in two buckets, they're in the first and the second bucket where they have income and they have capital uh, assets that are either, you know, stock or stock compensation or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or they otherwise have other ways that they can affect their taxes. And every time I I say things like affect their taxes, read that as like, you know, potentially the, the rest of the U.S. taxpayers are subsidizing that in some way. Yes. Okay. And we're going to get to a, a good example uh, that I hope is, is going to be pretty clear about that. But so I want to talk about um, different ways that people in tech get compensated. So oftentimes in the media, we talk about, you know, stock options or something that come along with uh, being in tech. And uh, there are actually, you know, stock options are incredibly complex. And like we are not, neither Daniel nor myself are financial advisors. This is not financial advice. You know, stock options are complex. Uh-huh. Complex. Uh-huh. We're going to break them down, but they could be further broken down even more than we're breaking them down way more in this episode. And we're going to, we're doing the high level of, of this, I feel. Um, to, to be clear, to be clear, listeners, sorry, I'm just going to, this little disclaimer this is this is me i'm going to like follow along with jim here and ask pertinent questions i hope when i can uh virtually my entire adult life has been a cash economy compensation whether it's uh waiting tables bartending construction under the table uh jobs that even were in semi-tech kind of uh (laughs) like a sysadmin job that mm-hmm. I was essentially not a salaried position. Right. So all of this is is a beautiful new field for me to play in and understand. And uh, I don't really know anything about it. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested to learn sure. and discuss it with, with you who has, who have dealt with this and you think about it and it's something that you have opinions on. Uh, because I, uh, Unlike 99% of the things that we are going to talk about, I don't really have strong opinions about this other than, you know, people should be communist revolution. Yeah. Past on the other side of the communist revolution, there will be no stock options. So, all right. Uh, So, so, so yeah. So basically you have uh, different types of stock compensation. I will even broaden the, the, the scope of things into that, right? So you have, uh, I think the most, I, I don't even know fair is like the right word to use, but the most straightforward where, way of of stock compensation are things called RSUs, which are basically, uh, it's short for restricted stock units, which makes it sound like super scary and complicated and intimidating. But basically what an RSU is, is it's, a, a either a batch of stock or uh, uh, chunks of stock that vest over a certain period of time for your continued employment at the company. 
that you receive as stock in lieu of cash. Okay, so instead of receiving a thousand dollars in January, you receive a thousand dollars worth of the company stock because a lot of companies they're they can mint stock very very easily and they they may not be able to come up with cash as easy. So it's doesn't very, that dilute the, the share value? It does, yeah. But okay. it's in the it's that's a good question, uh, but it's uh, easy. It's it's if you're a shareholder and the company's like, we have to pay our employees somehow. Okay. Mm. We can either f- sell office furniture to come up with cash or we mm-hmm. can dilute the shares a little bit and mint new stock to give to the employees. Then the shareholders are like, well, we're going to give it, we're going to mint some new stock and give that to the employees. And sure. And usually this is hopefully planned out ahead of time so that it's not a surprise to the the other shareholders and they understand that you know this is part of the operation of the of the company so um generally there's a vesting schedule i i uh uh you know it you know a very common vesting schedule in in technology is called this four-year vest with a three-year cliff i think is how they call it which sounds and again it's got all this jargon and basically what it means is that you have, you get nothing for the first year, okay? And then after the first year, you get a quarter of, of all of the potential vest. And then each month or each quarter, you vest another chunk in equal parts until you're at the end of the vest, okay? So let's say there's 48 months in uh, four years, after a year, you get 12 shares Let's, for easy numbers. Tw- you get 12 shares. Uh, the next month, you get one share. The next month, you get one share until you're at 48 shares after 48 months. Okay. That's how uh, a cliff vest works. And it incentivizes you to make it through, you know, that year, essentially. But so, f- so that's how an RSU works. From a tax perspective, RSUs are super straightforward because the taxpayer is not incentivizing that company to uh, give RSUs or for that employee to hang on to the RSUs, okay? That's the critical part. It doesn't incentivize the employee to, to hang on to the RSUs, okay? If, I, if, you, if your RSUs vest and they're worth $100, there's no tax incentive for you to not sell those, that stock immediately into the market and mm-hmm. have and converted into money. Okay. Um, and you just are taxed like normal income on that hundred dollars. Okay. Now, if you hold on to that stock for a year, you know, more complicated things happen. There's a capital gain that happens, but that is not the government incentivizing you to hold on to that, that stock, you know, uh, other than normal taxable stock. It's no different than normal taxable stock at that point. So RSU is very straightforward. ISOs uh, are, are short for incentive stock options, and they're usually given uh, as part of an initial hire package. 
and but not necessarily. I mean, you could be given RSUs as part of your initial uh, hire package as well. It, it, it really just depends on where the company's at with its in its life cycle, whether it's public or not, whether it makes sense. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might get RSUs versus ISOs. ISOs are super complicated, and I'm really not even going to fully explain them. Uh, but essentially, they um, they tr they can trigger a very expensive part of the tax code called alternative minimum tax, uh, which already most people in the country didn't know what AMT was. Uh, outside of people in California. I've never heard of it. Yeah, exactly. So AMT, the idea by AM, behind AMT was they in the 70s, they were like, you, uh, there's all these people in the tax world that should be getting taxed but aren't because they have all these ma magical deductions that are uh uh, taking away our ability to tax these people. And so instead of fixing all those deductions, they created another entire taxation system so that if you are in certain scenario, you your accountant has to run the numbers twice, once under AMT and once, once not, and you pay whatever has the higher tax bill. Okay. And oh it, it was meant for extremely wealthy individuals, but because it was not indexed against inflation uh, in the 70s, it ended up that in the 2000s and 2010s, it started affect, started affecting people in California and New York so that normal people who had six-figure incomes were paying AMT. And Trump tax cuts fixed that um, so that it's now in, in, uh, indexed against... You fixed that, yeah. I mean, if you consider that fixed. Uh, I mean, it, it helped a lot of right. working-class people in California and New York uh, it also they also lost their a few deductions, so it also kind of screwed them. But you know, and the, anyways, um, but AMT became not a problem for these people, and it started to only affect people that uh, were high wealth earners uh, or were had very successful uh, or long held ISOs. Uh, is a category of people that you could be in. So you didn't even have to need to be a high wealth earner. If you had ISOs, they count towards AMT, your AMT calculation. Um, it, ISOs are complicated, and they're not even really the ones that I want to argue against. Uh, I, th I think there are nuanced discussions you could have about ISOs that would be even more boring uh, than the discussion we're having right now. Uh, the ones I really want to talk about are ESPPs. Yeah, Daniel's laughing. He's like, I'm barely awake right now. So let's talk about. Oh my god, I need drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 needs uh, he needs he needs something. So let's talk about yes. an ESPP. So an ESPP is an employee stock purchase plan, and this is the one that I really want to talk about because this is I think exemplifies the question that I want to ask in very simple terms. So an ESPP is something where the company you work for says, hey, we're a publicly traded company. We would like you, our employee, to be invested in the future and well-doing of this company. 
So we would like to incentivize you to buy our stock at a discounted price. Okay. So usually, usually this discount is a 15% discount. Okay. So the, the, you know, let's say the, the share price is 10 bucks. You get a pre-agreed discount that you're going to buy that at 850. Okay. That's the discount. Sounds like a good deal, right? 15% off the stock price. The, which, uh, you know, you may ask, okay, so like, why don't you sell that stock immediately? Does that track changes? Yes. So like, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so how it actually works, right, is you have a purchase period where over six months, the agreement is, you know, could be, or, you know, it is in most cases, uh, you get to buy the stock at either 15% discount on this initial price or the price that it's at at the end of the purchase period, if whatever's lower, right? So if the stock, gotcha. goes, if the stock goes down, you get the discount on the lower price. If the stock goes up, mm -hmm. you get to buy it at that pre-agreed cheaper price and uh, you 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 can do whatever you want at, the, at that time. You can hold it, you can sell it, whatever, right? So if the pre-agreed price is $10, you get a 15% discount on that 850 at the end of the six month period, it's $11, let's say. Then you, uh, you sell it at 11, you pay income uh, tax on the difference between eight fifty and eleven dollars. Okay. So why don't so that you you know I've explained it that way. Why don't people do that a hundred percent of the time? What what's in it for the company uh, to incentivize you to buy it at a discount and then hold it and be invested in the future of the company? And you might say, well, some people work for a company, they really believe in the company, which, you know, that happens and it is true. And there's lots of people that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to have a way of saying. <laughs> Sorry, forgive me. Yeah, forgive like me. I, the way I word that it's weird, but it's like I'm, 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 I'm elucidating a, a thing that happens, right? Where people work for a company and actually like. I know company. it. I, I know it happens. Right. I know it happens. Um, but like, why don't people sell it immediately? And the reason that most people or people are incentivized not to sell it immediately is that the government has a, a section of the tax code that allows for special treatment, special tax treatment of uh, the difference between the 850 and the $11 if you hold on to the stock for a certain period of time, which can be a year to two years, oh, depending right. on when it is, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that is, is you have the government 
through the tax code, incentivizing people to hold on to their company stock when they would otherwise, or they might otherwise sell it, right? And I don't know that, you know, if, if a company wants to say, hey, we're going to give you a deal to hold on to our stock. And if you like our company, you're going to hang on to that stock. And if you don't like it, you're going to sell it, right? I don't have a problem with a, a private company having that deal with their employees, you know, no problem uh, or whatever discount they want to provide on the stock, uh, whether it be 15% or 5% or 3% or 30%, whatever. One of the things I want to ask is like, does it make sense for the, in the same way that the tax code incentive, you know, allows Donald Trump to spread out his wins and losses over a 20 year period. Does it make sense for ESPPs to uh, incentivize people to hold on to stocks they otherwise would sell? Okay. There's another aspect to it, right? So the other thing that these types of things allow you to do is they allow you to spread out where your income happens. Okay, so with ESPPs, if you sold, if you bought at a 15% discount and then sold immediately, you, the income happens in that year. Okay? Sure. With the preferential treatment, uh, you hold on to it for a year or two or five, the income doesn't happen until you sell it. Right? And so you have a lot more right. control over when you have that income, right? And so one of the answers to people who say, you know, I really don't like the fact that if I were ever to have a 35, you know, if if I get an, an Uber or a Lyft and the guy driving me around who is, I don't think generally they're in the same tax bracket that I am in, tells me that we need a flat tax, right? And he says, because it's super unfair for people to pay you know, 35% top marginal tax rate. Now, like, first of all, nobody pays that tax rate because it's, you know, that's how income tax works, you know. But second, one of the things that people in higher tax brackets tend to be able to do is move around when they can take their income. And that is something that we need to remember and, and add into these arguments when people bring them up. Okay, and I think that... Flush that out. What do you what do you mean by move around? And... So, an accountant um, who makes seventy thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. and just has W two income, just normal. I have a W two. It says I made seventy thousand dollars. I pay this amount of tax. That person has no ability to be like, I want to take ten thousand of this income next year. Because next year might be a lower tax year for me. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. When you have mm -hmm. a lot, you know, uh, when you have a lot of these t uh, stock type uh, incentives, they... Capital gains. You know, you can not only do you take advantage of long-term capital gains as part of this stuff, but you also uh, can move your capital gains into another year. Okay. Which gives... You know, even though the, the rich may pay more in tax, they have a lot more flexibility when they actually take their income. 
Okay. Theoretically. Theoretically. Yeah, some some do, and there are definitely examples yeah. that you could come up with that don't. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting with the ESPP example is, so let's say you have two people. They work in the, in the same company, you know, uh, XYZ Corp. And you have... One is an accountant who makes $70,000 a year, and one of them is a software developer that makes $200,000 a year. Okay? Both of them are financially minded. They both have the same politics. They both are like, I'm going to save for my retirement, and I want to make sure that I have, like, a nest egg when I... So all other things are equal except the income. Okay? The person who is making $70,000 a year... They are, it is going to be more difficult for them to participate in the ESPP than it is for the $200,000 a year person, right? Because it's 15%, so most programs, it's like 15% of your account, or uh, sorry, it's 15% of your income that you can contribute to this program, okay? When you are making $70,000 a year, 15% of your income is a big sacrifice. When you're making $200,000 a year, I'm not saying it's not a sacrifice, but it's not as big of a sacrifice, even though it's a larger amount of money. Right? So what that leads to is you might end up with the accountant who chooses to contribute to the ESPP over a 401k. So they put the money in the ESPP instead of their 401k. Whereas the person, mm -hmm. the software developer is making $200,000 a year is going to max out both. Okay. So the, the $200,000 a year person is going to contribute 15% of their ESPP and potentially max out their 401k contribution. Okay. Right. Which you think of the effects of that and the person who's, uh, making $70,000 a year is put into a much more precarious and risky position because their nest egg is now in their company stock where they work. And if they lose their job, the stock goes down potentially, you know, it could be a bad situation for them. Right. Whereas the person who's making $200,000 a year is much more diversified because the 401k is in a bunch of things as well as the company stock that they have. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that may lead to weird uh, decisions where this person making $70,000 a year sells their ESPP stock immediately because they want to diversify and, and screw the tax benefits of holding on to the, to the stock in the ESPP, whereas the person who's making $200,000 a year can handle the fact that they're they have diversity elsewhere and so they hang on for the tax deduction tax break it's not a tax deduction tax break okay so weird things can you know like it's uh i've, I've heard it you know seventy thousand dollars a year is not poor but it demonstrates that you know 
it is expensive to be poor, relatively speaking, you know, or it can be. Um, so those are some examples. And if I'm your like, intention. Hmm. Sorry. Say again. I was I was just gonna say I'm I'm gonna come out the other side of this conversation a diehard Maoist. So okay, yeah. I just want you to be prepared. For okay, that. that's fine. So <laughs> the uh, so I, I mean like you know I'm just breaking this thing down from a you know this is how this works okay and this these are this is how yeah, yeah. people uh, and their motivations play into it and like their thinking and like. You know, uh, pe- people have different levels of risk and stability within their lives at different, you know, income levels and different, right. whatever, you know, different, just different, you know, pure luck. It's a good way to put that. Right. So, um, so yeah, so those are some, some broad ways that people are, are, um, are compensated, um. I don't know that, I don't know. I have 401ks here in the notes. I don't even know that I really want to talk a ton about that above what I've already talked about, but. uh... Why don't you tell me a bit? All right, so we don't have to talk about it per se, but a lot, but I look at something like, I'm embarrassed to admit, I sort of had a very, very, fuzzy idea of what a 401k is okay and i literally just looked it up uh for the show and maybe maybe talk a bit about why 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 is that right you know, okay what, sure how does that contrast with a pension plan right so yeah so like one of the things that we have in the notes here that we the uh, you know i wasn't sure if i wanted to get into but we can get into it is like there are other types of ways that people can be given stability in their later years, right? So some companies have things called ESOPs, which are employee stock ownership programs, okay? And it works kind of like an ESPP in some ways and very different in other words. It's kind of like an ESPP and a pension put together. And basically, you your retirement plan is ownership in the company, Okay. And so, like, if you've ever been to Florida, there's a there's a grocery store called Publix, which is, I think, the largest ESOP in the country. And basically, most of the company is owned by employees because it's the, it's the company's retirement program. Um, Interesting. Now, there's problems with ESOPs, right? And one of the reasons you don't see them in tech is because tech is very risky. And, you know, it's a hard right, sell to employees right. to say your entire retirement should be held up in a tech company, which may not be relevant in 70 years. So it's probably why you haven't seen uh, ESOPs in place. Same reason for pensions, right? A pension is from the era when, you know, U.S. Steel is always going to be around, and therefore it makes sense for them to manage your retirement account for you. Uh, Because, you know, the idea behind a pension is that it's, the company manages it because they can pay people who know this stuff and are nerdy about this stuff and will ostensibly hopefully do it, do it well uh, and can do it at scale. That's the other reason that a pension is nice, right? But a 401k came along in the 70s, is my understanding, 
when they were trying to figure out a way that wasn't a pension but gave people a little bit more self-direction. And I mean, essentially, it's a it's a self-directed pension plan that is also tied into your, your employer, right? So there are IRAs that are technically, you know, have nothing to do with your employer or can have nothing to do with your employer. Um, that the government sets up and it's basically just you... Well, the government doesn't set it up. The government allows for it in the tax code to give you a tax break so that you're saving for the future because people just in human nature don't save for the future. And so the government decided, hey, it's good for society that we incentivize people to save for the future. Okay. It's the same reason that Social Security was made back in the day. It's, you know, that was a mandatory thing. 401ks and IRAs are optional. Okay. So a 401k is when the government took this part of the tax code that was meant for well-compensated individuals, they tweaked a few things, and they made it uh, applicable to everyone in a company, if a company wanted to set up a 401k. So one of the reasons that not everybody really understands 401ks well is because sometimes their companies just set them up for them. A lot of places don't have 401ks. There are plenty of employers that don't. Um, And there are plenty of employers that have different programs. If you work for the military, you have a TSP, which is like a 401k, but it's not called a 401k. If you work for a government, you might have uh, a 401a or a 457, which are different sections of the tax code that work similarly. Okay. So... So a 401k is generally a bank account for which you are invested in something. And like the money in that bank account is is invested in other things. Yes. So basically you transfer money in, in you, you transfer money into the account. The money is then used to purchase a stock or a bond right. or an index fund or whatever or even an annuity or some terrible you know crazy product. Okay? Right, right. Okay, so the government allows you to uh, put that, have that money, allows you to shift that income later, okay? So this is one of the ways that the the accountant earning $70,000 a year has a government-blessed way to shift their income into another year, potentially 50 years later, okay? Interesting. Basically, instead of making, if the accountant contributes $5,000 into their 401k, they pay taxes on $65,000 and in that year and don't pay tax on right. that $5,000. That 5000 grows, hopefully, you know, into $80,000 by the time they're retired. And when they take it out as income, it's taxed. Okay, so that's how traditional 401ks work. So there's another thing called a Roth where you front load the taxes and then you never pay tax on that money ever again, probably. Um, Or at least not income tax. So, you know, so one of the weird things about tech that if you're not in tech, you don't realize is that a lot of tech companies don't actually um, do a match on the 401k. So like, 
one of the things that a lot of companies do with their 401ks is they say, okay, we are going to match your income at the contribution, the contribution at 3%. So if you put in, uh, 3% of your income will match it a hundred percent. So, you know, it becomes 6% and basically it becomes free money for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, they use language like it becomes free money, but it's basically rather than the employer compensating you in cash that year, they're sticking it into uh, a 401k that they ostensibly get also get a tax deduction for. And you might ask why, why, you know, what would incentivize the employer to give you a match other than, you know, it just being a company benefit because we love our employees, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the reason, the reason that matching often happens, <laughs> is my level of cynicism appropriate for this episode? Is that? Uh, oh, no, no. Not high I, enough. He's like, it's not high enough. You need to raise it a few octaves. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, exactly. so. Forgive me. So, like, one of the reasons that a lot of employers um, introduce matches and also do things like mandatory enrollment, or not mandatory enrollment, automatic enrollment, it's not mandatory, it's they auto-enroll you in the 401k plan so that HR automatically starts deducting Mm -hmm. stuff from from your check at a certain amount, is because they have requirements from the IRS that require them to have certain levels of participation at different levels of the organization. Interesting. So because the IRS says, hey, you know, this plan can't just benefit people who are in the C-suite or people right. or people who are in, in a director level, if, you know, we're the IRS. We need to make sure that this that if you're getting a tax benefit, you are, uh, you know, giving a shot to everybody. Um, so the the IRS has a thing called a balancing test that they perform against 401ks to make sure that numbers that they're accept or that they're comfortable with, you know, different levels of the organization are actually participating in the 401k program. Um, and it's not just the directors in the C-suite. Okay. And so when you auto enroll people, it shows that there's participation in the plan. And when you mm-hmm. do a match, it is like, well, this is free money. So it auto enrolls or it, so it encourages people to enroll in the 401k and participate and not to decide to not participate. So, you know, it's a net positive, I guess, if you, if your frame of mind is 401ks are the way to go. Um, but obviously, you know, a 3% match helps the CEO a lot more than, you know, the receptionist, right? Because yes. they have higher incomes. So, or probably. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting because you and yeah, no, no, no. Because you and I have talked before, uh, very briefly about, um, how, Pensions, traditionally conceived pensions, are obviously going away uh, society-wide, and maybe don't even make sense for uh, for technology, where it is so much 
it is far riskier. I think there's also, uh, in terms of the venture itself, I think it's also, you know, something along the lines of uh, when so many of these companies essentially become vehicles for the enrichment of founders and venture capitalists, of course, they're not going to invest in a pension or something like right. that. You know, uh, when, when a VC sees, sees a startup as just a way to get incredibly wealthy, right? Why would you, why would you share that income with the people who are generating your wealth for you? Just a thought. Well, you know? and I think that pensions were conceived of it in a time where it's like, the assumption of everybody at that company was, of course, this company is going to be here in 100 years. Right. And, right, right. you know, I would be interested to see a poll run at any tech company of the staff and even of the executives who, you know, ask the question, is this company going to be around in 100 years? Right, right. Uh like, it's going to be pretty low. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so that's, I think that's what answers the, the pension question. So like, it's like, okay, so like, what is a, a better option than a 401k? I mean, like, it seems like the 401k or some sort of amping up of social security is really the only, you know, answer. So, um, I mean, obviously for my, for my end, I, I, definitely lean toward a deeply social democratic answer you know people like to hold up the nordics in that regard which sure i don't really know enough about the their cases to to make that argument but you know in theory on the face of it yeah i you know ramped up social security ramped up social services such that um, what a pension was supposed to old age pension provided from the, by the government is something I can absolutely get behind. Right. You know, things like that, where we mitigate on a national level, society wide, uh, the, the, um, risks, I guess, uh, such that you don't need, your employer shouldn't be dealing with that. Right. But I yeah, well, I, I think there's, <clears throat> Even the even the person who says, you know, I've, you know, who has this conception of I've made it on my own and I've made the sacrifices and saved and scrunched my pennies together and, you know, now uh, can retire with my 401k. Even, even to that person, I would say, like, why is it that your employer is even involved in this process? Like... Why aren't you given right. a choice where it's like, I can just have a private relationship with this company where I get a tax benefit for saving money, right? Um, you know, I, there are arguments against that. Uh, you know, we could talk about this all day. One thing I do want to talk about, I mean, I'm glad we went into the 401k section because there is something... That I'm going to tell you about, and it is going to make you very angry, uh, because mm. it is something that probably is—it's one of these like 
things that you hear about it's like maybe it's not as bad as like derivatives you know but you're like why does that thing exist it's like a monstrosity of tax code legal loopholes uh chained together and that is mm-hmm. this thing called the the mega backdoor roth uh and basically so wait it's called the mega backdoor roth that is what it's called that's the name that is the name yeah that's the name that is the name oh my god Mega, all right, because there's a there's a backdoor Roth, uh, but <laughs> this is this is the mega backdoor Roth. Okay. Oh God. So there is so <laughs> yeah. So basically, it doesn't even sound good. It sounds horrible. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It is kind of horrible. Okay, so you. So there's this thing called the the backdoor Roth IRA, okay? And the concept is you can take money from a traditional IRA, which is pre-tax. So that's like the government is giving you a tax deduction. And you can move it over to a Roth IRA, pay the taxes, and it's now, pre, it's now post-tax. And you never have to pay tax on that money ever again, okay? Right. So that's a backdoor Roth IRA, okay? And this was something that has been happening for probably 10 years and like it's the type of thing that it, like you have to go to the right accountant to do because not all accountants will do it because mm. some accountants are like uncomfortable with whether or not it's actually legal. Okay? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm I'm serious, right? So <laughs> So basically, somebody, somehow, the oh, the IRS was asked, like, flat out, are backdoor Roth IRAs legal? And the IRS ruled right. on it and said, yes, they are legal. And the IRS basically said, uh, we do not make the tax laws. Uh, Congress makes the tax laws. If ta- If Congress wants to fix this one, they are able to, they know how to fix it. Oh, okay. So what some smart person figured out is that the way that 401ks work, okay, so most people, if you ask, what is the contribution limit to a 401k? How much money can you per year contribute to a 401k? Okay. And I want you to put put yourself inside of a mind of somebody making $200,000 a year. Okay. Um, Contribution limit for a 401k is $19,500. Okay. So if you're a software developer, there are some software developers that like in the first three or four months of the year, stuff that much money into their 401k max out for the year. Okay. Which, you know, not even more than half Americans have access to a 401k, which means that most Americans definitely are not contributing 20 grand to a 401k okay so then so that the weird thing about the um a 401k is that there is another contribution limit that is called the employer contribution limit okay and that is how much your employer can shove into your 401k there's nothing that against the in the in the uh 
There's nothing in the tax code that says your em your employer can't stuff twenty thousand dollars into every employee's four hundred one k. As long as they do it equally to all of the participants of the four hundred one k, they can do that. Okay. Mm. So the total amount that can be put into a four hundred one k per person per year is actually fifty three thousand if you add the nineteen thousand five hundred. And the employer contribution, it comes out to like $53,000. Okay. So, what some person figured out is there's, there's actually, you can set up your plan in a way that the employee can contribute to that employer part of the, of the uh, contribution. So, there's nothing that stops you from saying, I want to contribute more than $19,500 if your plan allows it up to that $53,000 limit. Okay. Now the money in that section of the account, when you do that, isn't treated exactly the same way. However, it's after tax money and can be rolled into a Roth IRA. Wow. That section of the money can be rolled into a Roth IRA. Right. That's what makes this a mega backdoor Roth IRA. Or mega backdoor Roth oh is, is the correct way of saying it. Okay. And so this is something... That's a way to basically... Yeah, so this, is, this allows you to contribute $53,000 into your retirement savings if you, you know, are a high-income earning individual, right? Uh, and have an unethical accountant. No, it's at, since the IRS uh, ruled that this is legal, all accountants do it. All accountants will say, yeah. Like, because you have to have, oh, okay. you also okay. have to have, like, the company. So, like, um, your employer works with a company like Vanguard or Fidelity or E-Trade or TD Ameritrade or whatever these, you know, huge uh, Wall Street companies are called. To set up the 401k. And so they, so the company has to allow you to set up this backdoor Roth. But if you're like, mm -hmm. if you're, you know, a Mc, you know, if you, if you, uh, are you're about a, to say McDonald's, if you're a you. McDonald's, uh, you know, franchisee, right? <laughs> like what is the incentive for you to set up your 401k plan for your employees in a way that allows them to contribute $53,000 of their income to right. their retirement, right? No person like that is ever going to set up their plan like that. But a tech company, no. which has a large population of high wealth individuals, they might set up their plan like that, right? Fascinating. Right, and they might even have. Have you, people... have you ever seen the Untouchables, Jim? Uh, I don't think I have. No. Okay, I'll make it really brief. There's a very, very, very famous scene at the end, uh, like cinematically famous, uh, where the, the Untouchables. If you've never seen it, listeners, it's Elliot. It's this like romanticized tale of Elliot Ness taking down Al Capone in Chicago. Uh, I, my mom is from Chicago. I've lived in Chicago. I love Chicago. I've been going there since literally I was an infant. And so this is, was mandatory viewing in our house. And there's a very famous scene where they're, uh, where Ness is 
getting the and famously the way that Al Capone was taken down was through tax fraud right uh and things like that and there's a very famous scene at the end where Ness is going to the train station to catch the bookie before he leaves town or comes back to town I can't remember and is and it is protected by these mafiosos and uh and he's like this nevishy guy and like Ness manages Ness and his partner manage to have a shootout and kill all the thugs and take the bookie and I'm listening to you and imagining like this is what your accountant looks like and does like is this nebishy guy that handles the books for Al Capone and will will handle your mega backdoor mega backdoor IRA yeah, yeah, 401k exactly. whatever yeah, yeah. the fuck it is <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. Me, well, sorry. most accountants. Uh, my 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 father was an accountant, and uh, most accountants. So I've met a lot of. Accountants. Oh no! Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I've met a yes. lot of accountants, and most of them are uh, very ethical uh, and very boring people. Uh, yes. So, you know. Uh, right. Right. And including my accountant, he is uh, my. Yeah, he's. He likes wasn't, to talk. Wasn't a slight on the profession. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's he's a talker for sure. So. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, definitely, <laughs> uh, you know, there definitely, if you wanted to find that account, I'm sure that there are, you know, tucked oh, into, yes. uh, you know, some inner city somewhere. There's the, you know, d- d- somewhere in Brooklyn or, uh, you know, the, the, you know, somewhere in New York, there's like a guy that, right. uh, you know, but, you know, I, I think, the point I think I wanted to make with this episode, and you know, it was a really wonky episode. I think we went to some interesting places, but like, hopefully, um, you know, there's things like health benefits and HSAs and FSAs and all these things that like help people either shift their, their income to different, uh, times or, you know, with health benefits, you, you can, you can think of them as something that may be, well provided in your workplace but there may be workplaces where they are not provided or well provided and you know do these systems contribute to the inequality we continue to see in our society and like should we change them you know answer that yeah and we should you know you think about that and you know is that are you okay with that is my question to you yes Right, right, right. So, you know, like, your answer to that is yes. And right, I'm guessing? Yes. Okay, interesting. Very, very interesting. So, you know, a challenge, a challenge to all those developers and and tech people out there. Care about your taxes, but not in a selfish way, I guess. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so I think that uh, it's pretty much all I wanted to say uh, this week. Uh, anything else you got, Daniel? Before we wrap up? No, no. I there. I guess you know it's for closing thoughts. It was a it was a crazy week for me, so I wasn't able to prepare for this show the way I wanted to. Uh, I have. I. It didn't really hit me until I was right before the show, and I was I was clicking around and looking for explanations of what an ESOP is. Um, these acronyms are things that had jumped out to me on the spines of books in libraries. 
if you the Library of Congress uh, numbering system for libraries, it's like the 501 uh, plus area of the library. Um, there's like a whole section in Chicago that's just I had seen them and I was like, they happen to be, they happen to be near relatively near to uh, uh, labor organizing and stuff like that. Mm. So I had stumbled across them and was always like, ah, oh, that looks boring. I don't care about that. But it's interesting because something I do care about, but know relatively little about, um, is the inherent contradictions in 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 worker-owned companies in terms of like, you know, is it even if your goal and you know, I know you and I come down on different sides of this to a certain extent. Uh, if your goal is to move beyond market systems, which I would like, I would like to do that. I would like to contribute toward that. Uh, I think it's an eventuality anyway. And so we should probably structure our institutions such that they can survive the eventual end of, of incentive based and profit based systems. Right. That being said, there's a very famous example that Chomsky brings up a lot, which is the Mondragon uh, worker owned uh, cooperative in uh, Spain. Uh, and it's a huge, it's a huge cooperative. Um, 80 some odd thousand people, billions in, in, I can't remember if it's billions in revenue or in, in market capitalization, but uh, it's really interesting. And it stands in a, in a, in a contrast to what we're talking about, because it's not a, I don't believe it's, it's not a publicly traded company, right? right? You own, you are, you are owning part of the company, but what you are owning are not publicly traded shares. Right. And so it's privately again, held. It's, it's privately something held. that I don't really say that it's privately held. It would be, it's the same as if, uh, three siblings owned a funeral home. Right. 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 That you have equal shares. Right. right. I, I don't know why my mind went to that, but like, you know, random example. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, it's the sort of thing where it's like something I have, I met Noam Chomsky like almost 20 years ago. I went to a lecture and got to talk to him and I asked him point blank about, you know, anarchism and what, what does he see? It's not 1936 Spain, right? Right. What are ways that was an one of the only successful, semi-successful right. anarchist revolutions? Um, what are ways that these that these sorts of uh, currents are manifested? And he was like, "Well, one of the and it's a pat line that he gives a lot is is Mondragon, even though it is embedded within the contradictions of capitalism." And uh, the whole time I'm listening to you, I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, okay." But it's all part with these ESOPs, with these uh, employee ESPPs and, and 401ks, it's all feeding right back into this into this market system. Right. Right. Like it assumes this, that the world's going to be know, set up a is, certain way. All of it. Say that again. All of it assumes that the yes. world is going to be set up a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's not something I, I really know or understand deeply uh, at all. Well, and I, I, I think that I yeah. I do agree that, like, the you know, at some point the world is going to work, is going to move beyond, it's going to move to post-scarcity, I guess is how I would say it. And, you know, our right. ideas about... Right, that's a about, good way to say it. Yes. Our ideas about markets are going to change or 
melt. Um, but, you know, I guess my perspective is we're not ready for that yet. Like, we just, you know, it's not possible. It's a waste. Right. We got a ways to go. Yeah. And so, you know, on the road to that, I think, you know, one of the things that people on the left need to be able to do is understand these systems, not ignore them necessarily, and have a critique uh, that, you know, mm. I talk through RSUs, don't have a problem with RSUs. You know, I have some critiques of ESPPs and just I'm asking the question, like, you know, is the way this is set up, does it actually make sense? Or is it totally fine that an ESPP is set up that way? Because, you know, people, the $70,000 accountant person is, you know, getting, has access to the earned income tax credit, which somebody who's making $200,000 a year might not have, right? So there's like, there's arguments against what I'm saying, but I'm just trying to you know, th put put a put a question out there and, and have people think about this. Uh, you hear the right perspective on this all the time. Let's talk about the left perspective on this as well. So, interesting. It's a it's like one of those subjects that I, you know, the left doesn't like to talk about. Right. Let me rephrase that. This is something you know. You sort of kind of turned me on to the majority report, right? right. And. I, I, I didn't really listen to them until you and I started uh, hanging out and talking and sadly until after Michael Brooks passed. Mm -hmm. But I, I listen to them regularly now. And uh, I I think Sam Cedar is right about the courts and that leftists need to fucking care about right. the courts. Right. You can have really, really, uh, you know, a hostile attitude toward the power that is given to the courts, to the structure of the judiciary, but we need to care about it. We need to care about it in the way, it, maybe not in the way, but with the ferocity that the far right, and I'm going to say the far right, not just the right, right. you know, uh, um, cares about it. And I think that there's probably a similar argument to be made for things like this. Even if someone like me who will read three volumes of capital and, and eat it up, but then you turn around and say, okay, well, let's look at the tax code. And my eyes glaze over. Right. And I'm like, I, I, I don't want to talk about this. This right. is fucking boring to right. me. Uh, but I need to learn how to talk about these things. I need to learn how to understand them. Yeah. Uh, I think probably a lot more people do as well. Absolutely. And I mean, we don't have to be perfect, but, you know, just a little bit of knowledge goes a long way, you know. So, all right. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Pushing Left. You can also find the podcast. We've finally got our DNS all happy, and uh, pushingleft.net <laughs> is where the uh, is where the show lives. Uh, we also get in uh, on the ground floor, folks. Absolutely, get in. Uh, invest low, sell high. So right. we uh, pushingleft.net is where you can find the show. Uh, we're on iTunes and several uh, podcatcher type distribution networks if you're not finding us on your podcatcher and you want to subscribe please do send us an email at pushing left podcast at gmail.com send your other uh fan mail hate mail whatever you got to pushing left podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and uh feedback just on the episode like you know is this something was this totally boring is this something something that uh 
you have a question about or whatever, let us know. Uh, or show suggestions, even. We'd be happy to hear, hear them. Absolutely. Thank, thanks, Daniel, uh, for your time this week. It was great to see you again. And uh, we will see you next time. See you next week.